You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, Hawaii's congressional delegation issued a letter to the Navy over its handling of fuel leaks at Pearl Harbor. In its letter to the military, the lawmakers called for more transparency. Hawaii Public Radio was the first to report on the leaks this summer. It filed the first open records request back in July and was denied access due to national security issues about critical infrastructure. Following that, HPR reached out to lawmakers for help. That was almost four months ago. The state attorney general's office has since said it's working with the military to redact sensitive information. In a letter sent to Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro this morning, the Hawaii delegation said, we are particularly troubled about reports of a fuel leak near Hotel Pier at Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam that occurred March 2020, and allegations that the Navy has not been appropriately forthcoming about the source and the scale of the fuel leak with state regulators, federal officials, the public, including our offices. These recent incidents, including the manner in which the Navy has responded to them and its lack of transparency with the public, raise questions about the seriousness with which the Navy takes its responsibility to communicate clearly with the public about matters concerning health and safety. The people of Hawaii deserve better from the Navy, end quote. The delegation included a list of questions, including the relationship to the Red Hill Fuel Storage Facility, which holds millions of gallons of fuel and where previous leaks have occurred over its long history. This comes on the heels of a notice of violation and fines levied against the military last week by the state health department over the Red Hill facility. We hear from the new deputy director of environmental health, Kathleen Ho, an environmental lawyer and former deputy attorney general. She assumed the reins of the division four months ago. We talked to her this morning. You know, the, the DOH mission is to protect human health and the environment. And like our congressional delegation, the DOH is also concerned about the timeliness of the Navy's reporting to the DOH. So we look forward, actually, to receiving the information that the congressional delegation has called on the Navy to provide. Now, they are asking for a delegation-level hearing before the end of the year. How does that affect the timetable that we have, uh, you know, with the operating permit for the Navy? Are you speaking about the permit, the contested case? Yes, the operating permit for Red Hill. That question really is really up to the, the trier of fact, I think. The contested case and all the information before the hearings officer will take into account all the information that is before him. So if, you know, as you know, that there is a a motion for remand that may be coming by the Deputy Attorney General in the contested case, if the information, the hearings officer will take all that information before him and will uh, make a recommendation to the Director of Health. So will that motion come this week? I don't know if it's going to come this week, but it should be coming shortly. Okay, and that will reopen the hearing to allow more testimony to be able to present new information? Ordinarily, the parties will make a motion to remand, which will then bring it back down to the to the hearings officer. And it's likely that the hearings officer may, in the motion, dictate what areas of the information they will be taking. And so if this is one of the areas, then that will um, be before the hearings officer. So that'll just uh, progress. And then uh, the hearing that the uh, delegation is calling for just happens outside of that. You know, I, I can't really speak to that because I don't know if there is a hearing to remand, whether that would be the timing of that. Well, you know, last week, the Department of Health uh, issued a notice of violation and notified the Navy, you know, of potential fines. Can you can we explain to our listeners what the Department of Health sought? The notice of violation, which was issued on October 27th, I believe, was the first compliance inspection that was done at Red Hill. And it was a series of inspections taking over a two-week period, and it started on September 28th and ended on October 9th of 2020. It was a detailed inspection of very of the 20 large fuel storage tanks and other tanks and a series of complex pipings. As a result of it, we did issue a notice of violation, which consisted of five counts, failure to maintain 
ongoing corrosion protection and a failure to perform line tightness testing for when they brought a tank back into the service and failure to do an annual liquid tightness test on spill prevention equipment and also a failure to perform adequate visual walkthrough of the inspections at the hydrant pit and other areas. And then finally, it was a failure to maintain adequate release detections of the double-walled underground storage tank. And as a result of that, we issued a penalty of approximately $325,000. And we are asking that the Navy perform corrective action within 30 days or give us a time frame in which they can perform the corrective action. And if the Navy decides that it wants to contest it, they have 20 days from the issuance of the NOV. Have you heard back from the Navy? I have not. The Navy seemed concerned that they were caught off guard and that there was no indication of, you know, that anything was amiss. It is a notice of violation. So, therefore, when we issue the notice of violation, we are telling the parties that there is a violation. The Department of Health doesn't have to give anyone any pre-warnings of a issuance of the notice of violation. But I will tell you that we did inform the Navy of the fact that we were issuing the violation prior to the issuance of the violation. And the Navy uh, did release their uh, report uh, into the fuel leak uh, when the pipes ruptured earlier this year. I don't know what the department uh, uh, thought of the findings. You know, human error was was uh, how they uh, phrased it. Yes, you're talking about the May 6th uh, violation. Yeah, the, the the rupture of the pipelines at right. the Red Hill facility. Right. So we we received some documentation from the Navy on October on or about October 1st. The Department of Health is still evaluating those reports that we received from them. Do you think there might be additional citations? I can't speculate on that as we're still evaluating the records that we received. And then, you know, uh, Hawaii Public Radio did report on the uh, fuel leaks at Pearl Harbor earlier this summer. You know, there were two. And the uh, delegation, you know, seemed concerned about the hotel pier leaks. You know, at the time, we had asked for uh, an open records request to to look at those reports and, and were denied, basically, because the military determined it was critical infrastructure. You know, they basically opted not to uh, to give the okay to release it publicly. But I did get a call from the attorney general's office saying that, you know, they were reconsidering that and that they're working with the Navy to redact some of the sensitive information. Right. So the DOH has to comply with federal law. And so in order for us to release any information, it has to, because it's a matter of national security, the Navy has to first release those documents. But... If any party wants to seek the records directly from the federal government, they can do so. Right, but it sounds like, though, the state is trying to uh, pressure the Navy to release some of those documents. Yes, we are. We're, we're trying to get the records as quickly as we can. You know, and there's been new information. There are some emails that have been circulating that, you know, raise the question uh, whether information about the fuel leaks in, in Pearl Harbor might have been withheld because the, the uh, contested case hearing was working its way through. You know, how, how are you folks looking at that situation? I'm unable to address that question as or comment on that as it is a matter that's under investigation. Okay. Uh, do you think that that could be something that will be taken up if the uh, hearing is reopened? Again, I... I can't speculate. Well, where do we go from here then? Well, we'll continue to protect human health and the environment and press for more information and enforce the um, administrative order and consent and await the Navy's decision on whether to contest the notice of violation. Can you tell us what the status is of the remediation um, out at Pearl Harbor? That's a loaded question. Um, which which facility are you? Hotel Pier. 
uh, you know, there was it, it was going to move from, a, I guess, emergency response to remediation. Uh, have, are we in that phase? As we know? far as I understand, it's still in emergency response. We've been hearing from Kathleen Ho, the Deputy Environmental Health Director, about the latest developments with the fuel leaks at Pearl Harbor and at the Red Hill Underground Facility. Ho, an environmental lawyer, was just named to the post this summer. And, you know, the Navy uh, this morning issued a statement uh, saying it is still reviewing the notice of violation order uh, as well as the open records uh, request. Uh, it says that the uh, Department of Defense critical infrastructure security information uh, is prohibited uh, by f uh, federal law. The release of that information is prohibited by federal law. And, you know, we did ask listeners to share their thoughts about the future of the Red Hill fuel tanks, and this is some of the talkback we received. Tom Young wrote, remove the fuel tanks now. Water is the most critical resource to survival and very much damage in the central plains thanks to pineapple and sugar with no accountability. Now are we expected to gamble with yet another aquifer? And Cheryl Chang emailed, pull their permits. Accidents will continue to happen until our aquifer is contaminated. Uh, the statement will be, my bad, the government will bring desalination uh, equipment for the military, and we will have no pure water. And another listener, David, call this in. Hello, this is David Hanau from Honolulu. Is it possible to build a new facility at a different location on Oahu? You know, thanks so much for the feedback. You can email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, reach out via social media on Facebook, or call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You are listening to The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's backyard, we are playing leapfrog. Bufo marinus, or cane toad, is the largest species in its family. Adult cane toads weigh an average of four pounds and can grow up to nine inches long. Native to Central and South America, uh, about 150 cane toads were introduced to Oahu in 1932, and they have since flourished. Cane toads were brought to Australia via Hawaii in uh, 1935. Since their introduction, down under the toads have reached a, a plague-like status, dominating the landscape, mainly due to a single female's ability to produce as many as 35,000 eggs per year. They have been embraced wholeheartedly in Queensland, which lists them as state icon. Residents of Queensland are also colloquially called cane toads, and Queensland is home to the satirical magazine, The Cane Toad Times. Varying in color from olive brown to semi-yellow, this amphibian can camouflage itself with its surroundings to escape predators. However, this is not only the defense mechanism that these toads possess. For today's quiz, can you tell us what the other defense strategy the cane toad relies on? Here's a hint. It can be harmful to your household pets. Call 808-941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 1-877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com Oli 
You know, around this time last year, the U.S. Postal Service was looking to hire about 500 seasonal workers. Well, guess what? It needs that plus 100 more this time, a mix of entry-level and temporary holiday employees. Also new this year, you know, there are mandatory vaccine mandates for federal workers. But interestingly enough, we learned that because the Postal Service is a quasi-governmental agency, a mandate isn't in place, though the COVID shots are highly recommended. The postal workers will have to comply with OSHA regulations as well. Guidance on that is expected out this week. We talk about what kinds of postal jobs are being offered on all islands. Here's Kevin Nakoka, USPS operations manager. Normally our Christmas season ends pretty much at New Year's, right, January 1st. But since last year, our Christmas season just blended into the regular part of the year. And we've experienced Christmas volume ever since then. And, you know, like I said, Amazon in the past month, Probably went up about a good 20-30% on top of what we normally receive. And forecasting for this coming Christmas is about a 50-70% to 70% increase on top of that. We're, we're, trying to, we're trying to deal with those kind of volume increases with the staff we have on hand, and that's the reason why we're, we want to ramp up the, the hiring part of it. It's all volume-driven, so the more packages you order, you know, the more volume we're going to get, and that's why we need need a little bit more people to, you know, get home these packages that everybody's ordering. What can you tell us about hiring on the neighbor islands? You know, let's let's go island by island. So island by island. And we'll start with Maui. So Maui, you know, we're looking for about 60 to 70 hires over there. And the split is pretty much 50% as far as our Christmas hires and our, what we call now is our pre-career hires. You know, so uh, Maui, we're mainly looking for rule, rule carriers. So there's two different types of rule carriers um, as far as a rule craft. There's a rule carrier associate and an assistant rule carrier. So a rule carrier associate is one that um, pretty much covers the days off. They cover the days off of the regular rule carrier, and they cover any, you know, vacation time that they may take. So, you know, some, some, are, some rule carrier associates, they literally only work once a week you know, when they cover that day off. Or there's some of them that, you know, they might work the entire week for one period for, you know, maybe a month. And then they might work a, one day after that, you know, pretty much on a weekly basis until the carrier takes another vacation. And then they might work, you know, another, a full week or a couple weeks after that. So you got to have a flexible schedule. And then what about training? Yeah, so training for, for all, pretty much all carrier positions, there's, a, there's about a three-week training period. You know, it's five days a week for those three weeks. You know, you go through a driver training, you go through a, a carrier academy. And then, of course, there's an on-the-job training as well on top of that. So you're looking at probably the first three weeks. It's just just training itself. Okay. And then uh, what about, uh, say, Big Island or Kauai? So Big Island, Island of Hawaii, we're looking to hire about 75 total, 37 pre-career um, positions out on the island of Hawaii, and, and that that's a split between the east and the west side. And again, for those, it's pretty much rural carriers that we're looking for. A lot of assistant rural carriers. Assistant rural carriers, they, they can work Sundays and holidays and occasional Saturdays. But now with um, with COVID, you know, kind of winding down, but with COVID, we can work. They can actually work. They could work literally every day of the week if needed be. Those assistant rural carers are the ones that, you know, it's, it's what the title is. They, they provide the assistance to these rural carers. Because, you know, we have, some, we have some rural routes that are averaging probably about 300-plus packages per route, where normally they only receive maybe 60 to 70 per route. So, so it's intense work. Yes, intense work. And, you know, trying to, trying to get it all delivered before the sun goes down, it makes it even harder, because especially with... You know, when we head towards these um, winter seasons, there's less less daylight for us, right? So the more help we can get out there, the, the safer it'll be, and, you know, we can get all these packages delivered to the, to our customers. All right, and then what about Kauai? So Kauai, that's, let's see, Kauai, we're looking for about 20 hires. And as far as 
for the pre-careers, about five pre-career hires that we're looking for out there. And again, those are rural carriers, rural carriers for the island of Kauai. Kauai is the one island we seem to have the hardest time hiring for, for whatever reason it is. But that one is, is always a challenge. And these jobs, I mean, it's decent pay. Yeah, the pay, the pay ranges from $18.01 to $20.66 an hour. Plus, on top of that, because we work in Hawaii, we get 25% territorial cola on top of that. So the you cost of living? Another, what is that, about another four, four, $4.50 an hour? Okay, nothing to sneeze at. Nothing Pretty to decent. sneeze at. And then what about Oahu? Uh, because, you know, you said you, you need to hire people at the processing center. Our biggest piece of the pie is, is the island of Oahu. Uh, we're looking at a total of about 525 hires on the on Oahu, with about 300, 300 being pre-careers. So for Oahu, it's a little different. We're looking for um, PSC mail processing clerks. They, they work in the processing center. They're the ones that handle the mail that that comes through um, you know, our processing and distribution center. We're also looking for mail handler associates. They, they pretty much move the mail in the processing center. Then on top of that, um, we, we have a few openings here and there in the post offices and stations where we're looking for PSC mail processing clerks as well. And those are the folks that uh, man the counters and it, They're, they're the ones stamps. that do the behind the scene kind of right. thing. You know, just, um, they sort the packages. The you know they put the mail in the PO boxes, that kind of, the things that you know a customer wouldn't be able to see. Right. And eventually, yeah, they they do make their way to working the counter, servicing customers as well. So it, it's a it's a bunch of things that they can do out in the post office and station. So you made this uh, uh, announcement, this call for uh, uh, for help. Uh, what's the response like? Is it different this year than in years past? Yeah. So last year, last year was our probably our best turnout as long as I can remember. But this year, it's a little slower this year as far as the, the applicants. So, you know, we have, a, we have a good chunk of applicants, especially on Oahu, but of course we could use more. And, you know, that's the reason why for the, the, that press release we sent out. And yeah, Oahu, it's, our Oahu numbers aren't hitting what we expected. And the ex- the expectation was compared to last year, you know. Right, but do do we have any idea what's, you know, what's happening out there? Any other jobs, other job openings, I guess. Yeah, so you know, when we contact some of the guys that applied last year, you know, they got they got a they either got called back to their old position or, you know, they found another job elsewhere. Okay, and then uh, what else can you tell us? Uh, Gosh, I mean, uh, uh, you have to be vaccinated, right? Um, What's the situation there? The post office doesn't require the vaccination. It's highly recommended, but, yeah, we don't require it to be done. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, unlike other federal agencies where they did mandate it. Why is that? Uh, you know, honestly, I wouldn't be able to tell you that reason. Wow, and I don't know what the conditions are, are like in the processing center. If you've got, you know, it's indoors and are people working in close quarters? Yeah, so, of course, you know, the whole masking up is, is mandatory in the processing center as well as the post office and stations. And then, you know, they practice the social distancing as well. But, yeah, again, as far as the vaccination, there is no real mandate on it. So I guess if someone loses their job because they refuse to get vaccinated, they can go apply at the post office. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Anything else that you think would be important to uh, underscore? Last year, last year we expected the, the volume bump, and you know, this year we're expecting it on top of what we received last year. So it's that much more volume we're looking at, and not necessarily coming through our processing center here. You know, some volume goes directly to our post offices and stations for delivery. Mm. It, it, so it doesn't all just come to Honolulu? I thought it did. Well, it well, I should say, like the Amazon volume, it gets delivered straight to the offices. It doesn't come to the processing center to be processed and sorted. It they just drop it directly at the offices, and we deliver it from there. So okay. Oh, I know. Uh, can you talk about how the 
shipping disruption in ports like Long Beach and L.A., how that's impacted the Postal Service, if any? We haven't really felt that effect yet. But what we did feel is, you know, people starting to order more. Right. Because of that. And, you know, it does, a lot of it comes through us. And, you know, that's, that's where our package volume has increased as well because of that. Are we having to put up tents again? I mean, I don't know, uh, to warehouse the stuff? Yeah, so this year we actually have every island pretty much has like a, you know, a quote-unquote annex where, you know, our overflow of volume is going to be housed at. Well, this is the first year I can remember doing that in this magnitude. That was Kevin Nakaoka, operations manager of the U.S. Postal Service, talking about the need to hire 600 workers, both seasonal holiday positions and entry-level career slots on all islands. For links to job information, head to our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Kahala Market by Foodland. From October 13th through November 9th, celebrating all things coffee, featuring locally grown specialty beans and dishes such as coffee jerk chicken. KahalaMKT.com. The Supreme Court is about to hear its highest profile guns case since 2008. I think it's fair to say this is the Second Amendment case that gun rights advocates have been waiting for for over a decade. We'll take a look at the case and why the court's decision could have an impact on state gun laws across the country. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. One of the stories Honolulu Civil Beat has on its website is about pollution in the Kaka'ako area. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us with the latest. That's our reality check today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. So tell us, what kind of pollution are we talking about? Well, uh, there's one thing that we see going into the harbor, uh, and it's mud. It's like muddy, muddy runoff or something coming through the storm drain system. Um, it's, you know, brown, brown muddy water. Uh, we had heard about it. We went down and documented it ourselves um, a couple of days later um, and, you know, saw it. And um, it's clearly there. The question is... Is it coming from the construction site directly across the street, um, which is operated by Howard Hughes Corporation, um, you know, the developer and owner of Ward Village and that whole area of Kakako, or is it coming from some other source? So that's one question, one issue going and, on down there. And that's it, the Kualo Basin Harbor. Y yes, correct. I'm sorry. Yes, Kualo Basin Harbor, you know, the harbor right there uh, adjacent to Kakako. Well, I, I did look at the video, and, and it is kind of troubling because, I mean, that's a lot of stuff that's going into the water. Yes, it was a lot, and people, again, were very upset about it. It wasn't the first time it had happened. And the, the interesting thing is that, you know, if it is coming from Howard Hughes's project, and, again, we have not proven that, and, and it hasn't been proven, um, it, there is some amount of discharge and runoff that is allowed. The company has a permit. Uh, from the Department of Health, Clean Water Branch, that allows this sort of thing under the Clean Water Act. Um, however, we did talk to the Department of Health after, uh, for the second time after we published the story with the video, and they said, whoa, wait a minute, uh, this is not going to be allowed even under some kind of permit. So uh, that's an update that we're going to be running on the story. Oh, interesting. So they may go down there and try and figure w what's the source? Well, yes, but again, the problem is they, they need to go down there when it's happening, and um, they can't, uh, if it's not happening, it's hard for them to tell the source. We, we got called, people were calling uh, DLNR, too, thinking DLNR was somehow responsible, um, but it, it turns out the folks who were worried should have called the Clean Water Branch of the Department of Health. Yeah, it is sometimes tricky to figure out, you know, who are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. And and so your your story also mentioned something about uh, rust dust. <laughs> Talk about yes. that. Yes. 
Yeah, exactly. So that was another thing. When we went down there, we found out people were saying, oh, and, and look, there's this as well. So these specks of rust are appearing on boats where they, there's no metal on the decks or, or anything of these boats. So um, and we're talking about big catamarans, like the big booze cruise catamarans that go off of Waikiki. That, that's one of the ones that we talked to. Um, specks of dust, uh, specks of rust appearing, and they're presuming that it's coming from the building there. The, again, there's a really tall building. It's being built right across in the harbor, and they think somehow metal particles of metal are coming off of the building and landing on the um, on on their boats. It's the only explanation they can come up with because again, there's no metal on the boats to rust. Yeah, that is very curious. And then is there anything that regulates dust or particles in the air? Yeah, this is something that uh, folks are looking into. We tried to look into it. There is some fugitive dust law, uh, but it's very tricky to figure out, well, what is the source of the dust? And uh, these particles are so small that I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, I just don't know. People. Are, are looking into it, trying to figure it out. But again, getting to the causation, and is it this uh, big building uh, that people presume or not? Uh, that's really the question. Right, so a uh, mystery about where that dust is coming from. And then also, uh, like you said, I guess the health department's gonna take a closer look at, at all this uh, stuff that's coming into the water. Right, so that that's the idea, and again, we're we're going to keep looking too, and and try to figure both of these things out. A, again, the boat owners are saying, look, all of this started when they started building this building. We weren't having the problem with the rust specs before. It started now. They're presuming that it's coming from basically across the street, uh, but they just can't. Uh, they don't. They can't prove it, and they haven't proved it. And uh, what did Howard Hughes say? They said they didn't know about any of these problems. We, I wrote to the president of the, the local president. He said he didn't know anything about any of this. Okay. Well, maybe they'll take a, a closer look because, uh, yeah, you don't want to see fines in the future, but you don't want to see this pollution going in the water or the air. Well, I think that's really the big issue. You know, people are really concerned about uh, pollution in, in the harbor, in the water, and we have both uh, runoff, which – you know, we have pictures of, and then this other thing, people are saying if it's landing on the boats, then it must be going in the water, too. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Chat. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. If you already use your smartphone or iPad to wake up in the morning, you can wake up to Morning Edition on Hawaii Public Radio. You can tune into either of our two stations first thing in the morning, all day long, and with our sleep timer, you can even fall asleep to HPR. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Download our app for iPhone, iPad, or Android, and stay connected with HPR. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years in Hawaii, featuring Daikin Air Conditioners. Learn more about contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Earlier in the show, we asked you if you knew the defensive mechanism used by cane toads to thwart predators. Originally introduced to our island via Oahu in 1932, these toads have continued to multiply at astronomical rates. In fact, their population in Australia has spun so far out of control, many refer to it as a plague of toads. Cane toads possess an uncanny chameleon-like ability that allows them to blend into their surroundings, to trick predators. But when that fails, the toads have another, more direct approach. 
When threatened, the cane toads secrete toxic ooze from their neck glands that can be deadly. Small dogs and cats are easily susceptible to this deadly toxin, which can kill an average-sized domesticated animal rather easily. The ooze is not just bad for pets, but can also be bad for their respective owners. A little-known fact that this ooze can be smoked or licked, causing a hallucinogenic effect, but can subsequently, uh, subsequently can result in s- serious cases of warts, tongue fungus, and in extreme cases, death. So before you start licking frogs in search of Prince Charming, make sure it isn't one that could potentially give you a fungus tongue. And our winner today, Eli Maioho, originally from Molokai. You got it right, but we got lots of callers on this one today. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The University of Hawaii Institute for Astronomy has another $15 million for its coffers thanks to a new NASA grant. So what's the money for? Well, monitoring asteroids, of course. The Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System, or PANSTARS, on top of Haleakala, identifies the majority of asteroids and comets near Earth, some of which could be catastrophic if on a collision course. But just how worried should we be when we look up into the night sky? Well, the conversations Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with astronomer Ken Chambers to find out. Everyone knows that there was an enormous asteroid uh, 63 million years ago that uh, wiped out 95% of the species on Earth. It wiped out the dinosaurs. That potential, the potential of an asteroid impact can be from something that large to something much more modest, right? And then the smaller one is going to be much more frequent. There's, the bigger ones are rare. The smaller ones are much more frequent. But you could still have one that had a devastating impact on, a, on an inhabited area. So our mission is to scan the skies repeatedly to try to find these objects. And this idea of, you know, a giant celestial object hurtling itself towards Earth is something that has captivated people's imaginations for decades I'm thinking of one movie in particular, I'm sure you get this all the time, but 1998's Armageddon, (laughs) in which we essentially looked up at the sky and saw that there was an asteroid the size of Tetsis that was going to hit us in less than a month. What's the likelihood that something that big could sneak up on us? Well, it's very rare, right? I mean, one, one one that's so large that will change the biosphere of the planet like the one 63 million years ago. That's, you know, one in 60 million years. But you could still have very, very devastating consequences from a much smaller one, right? Even a 140-meter even one, if it hit near a large inhabited area, would be terribly devastating, right? It would be the equivalent of many, many thermonuclear warheads. So you, you want to find as many of these as we possibly can. I look at it as a Panasaurus as an insurance policy. Your house is unlikely to get hit by a hurricane. But you still buy hurricane insurance because if it does hit, the consequences are so devastating, you would lose everything, right? So it's better to pay a little bit of insurance every month just on the chance that that happens. How big does an object have to be in order to do the type of damage you've described? One line is drawn, and this is by congressional mandate. And it picked a number, picked a number of 140 meters that Congress has mandated that we should try to find uh, 95% because it's hard to get 100%. But so let's start with getting the you know, first 95% of all asteroids greater than 140 meters. And that's because 140 meters can do a, you know, that's a, that's a city killer. That's not a planet killer. That's a city killer. And we find many, many, many of those every year. Find uh, many more, even smaller ones, and very few ones that are bigger than a kilometer in size. But we're, we're still finding ones that are bigger than a kilometer, and that would be a, a very devastating have you come across any in your works and observations where you're like, ooh, this one, this one could be bad? Like, what's, what's the <laughs> one you're most worried about? <laughs> well, at, the, at the moment, there aren't any that are on the list where we, we see a, a, an impact. There's ones that, you know, way in the distant future have a you know, very small probability of impacting the Earth. But you do come across things. We had one not so long ago, weeks ago, where we found this asteroid. It was a fairly large one two-tenths of a kilometer, so 200 meters, 
And the initial orbit, so the, the, the trick in these orbits is you take the data and you, and you get an initial orbit. There's errors in the observation, so there's errors in, the, in the, where the orbit goes. And so if you project that ahead, the, the errors make the potential path of, of impact larger and larger and larger. Um, but it was projected after its initial orbit to potentially hit the Earth in about 10 years, which is about, you know, that's the time scale on which you would really want to do something about it. But as we took more and more observations, we refined its orbit more and more. It used to take us, you know, about a month or so to get an orbit that was good enough where you could really say whether it was going to hit or not. In this case, after about 10 days of observations, we were able to find it in our archival data. So we've been surveying the sky for 10 years now with, with Downstars 1, and we have all that archival data. If you go back with the prior information that there might be something in some particular point, you can then go look at it and go, oh, my gosh, there was something there that we didn't pick up the first time. And so we did that, and we found observations of that object going back to 2010, 2013, 2018. And, and then with all that archival data, we were able to get a very good orbit, and the all, all clear signal went out, no, this one's not potential. It's not going to intersect the Earth at any time. If we can find it in the archive, we can have a much more accurate orbit much quicker than we could before. It's interesting. I think that the idea of an asteroid is so linked in people's minds to cataclysmic events, apocalypse, a meteor hits. What are you going to do about it? But we are currently living in an era where there are much slower, much more constant decisions about risk that we are making. In a pandemic, people are making decisions about risk for themselves and their family every time they leave the house. And we're also starting to face down some of the truly serious impacts of climate change. Where should the average person put near-Earth object in their list of daily worries? They should not worry about it, <laughs> right? Because the risk is so low compared to those other things. But what these other things have taught us, like the pandemic, is rare things do happen. So you want to be prepared. So you want to have a system like PanStars. In terms of, of, you know, do I lose any sleep at night worrying about asteroid impact? No, not at all. It's very unlikely. But boy, do we get excited when we found one like this one where uh, it looks like it potentially might be. And, you know, and again, it could happen. It could have been one whose orbit intersected the Earth. didn't turn out that way. But one will hit eventually. We want to find them because there's one out there, right? 65 million years is nothing in the, in the, the 4.6 billion uh, life of the, of the planet. There are objects out there. We want to find them all. You know, it could hit tomorrow. might not hit for a million years. And say you saw that, that big one, that one we all worry about, and say it was coming for us in a year. How would you want to spend your time? You have a little bit of a head start. You'll be among the first people to see it. How would you want to spend your year before the asteroid hits? <laughs> uh, that's a difficult question. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure I would be tied up with all the asteroid stuff for a while and be following it very, very, very closely. But I think like everyone else, we need to want to spend time with, with family and friends when, when you, you see, see something like this is going to happen. But there are things we can do to mitigate it, and that's what we would want to do. This is where the movies get it right, right? It really, it will, it will focus the world's attention, right? All the, all the battles between countries and stuff and all the philosophical disagreements and, and, and all of that sort of stuff just sort of melt away when you're faced with a threat that's, that's common to everyone, right? Um, it, it would be, you know, it would be a transformative experience, that's for sure. Even, even if it's a relatively small, you know, a city-sized one, right? Because you don't know what the... the you don't know it precisely where it's going to hit. What we know is that we know the plane of the orbit extremely well, and that draws a, a circle around the Earth at some angle. But we don't know the timing of it so well. We won't know that until, the, until it gets very close, until your radar on it. And so um, where it might be along that line is, is uncertain. So everybody along that line... <laughs> You know, they are, are going to know they're in the they're in the risk zone, and everyone will want to get away from that. And you're going to have all kinds of problems you have with mass evacuation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even even for uh, one of these 140 meter ones. Mm -hmm. And going back to that idea of interplanetary defense, 
what would we need, for instance, to stop a 140-meter near-Earth object from colliding with Earth at all? Do we have the ability to do that? Do we have any type of defense mechanisms already in place? Yeah, so the international planetary defense community gets together uh, every couple of years and does a simulation, right, to work out all these particulars of how to actually deal with all the different all the different aspects of it, right? So we're deeply engaged in day one when it's the astronomy part, <laughs> right? Then over the course of the week, when you get into you know you get into these political discussions and you get into disaster preparedness and all these other aspects of it that, that you want to exercise. So there's, you know, there's international agencies that are prepared to deal with disasters and stuff. And so, you know, for a very short period of time, they participate with us to prepare and try to scope out what kinds of things we would do in the case. So usually the, the simulation is for something bigger than 140 meters, right? It might be for a kilometer or a couple of kilometer object, right? And there's various different ideas out there, kinetic impactors where you just send a, a big slug to hit it to try to change its direction. There's things called the gravity tracking of a massive spacecraft next to it and try and pull it out of its orbit with the gravitational attraction. But the one that's most likely to be used, and in fact in these simulations always ends up being the one to use, is you do have to use a nuclear warhead. And in that case, you don't want to blow it up. Right? That's the, the, the destruction is not the, not the goal. The goal is to just give it a little push. And the earlier you can give a little push, the more leverage you have as time goes on, and it's going to have a miss the Earth by a wider margin. So what you want to do is detonate your thermonuclear warhead just off to the side of the thing, and you give it a little push. Um, so you don't try to blow it up. You just try to give it a little shove from the side to change its orbit. <laughs> now, there is, there is a wrinkle in this. Mm -hmm. There's a political wrinkle in this. And that's, we have this thing called the Outer Space Treaty that was written back in the 1960s and back in the peak of the Cold War, which forbids the detonation of nuclear weapons in space or even putting nuclear weapons in space. And that's a very, very important treaty. It's critical. You don't want nuclear weapons in orbit, then you could have the World War III in a very, very short period of time. So it's been a very, very important treaty. It's protected us all this time. So the space lawyers, and there are, there, you know, there is a, a field of space law, look at this, and their recommendation is don't open up the treaty for negotiation because anytime you open up a treaty for negotiation, it gets weakened. And if there happens to be an asteroid coming, then the president makes the decision to violate the treaty, nuke the asteroid, and you'll litigate it later. Wow. Yeah, I, I see there would be a pretty compelling reason as to why. <laughs> You know, I'm just an astronomer. This is all above my pay grade, right? This is done by the the, the politicians and the, and the agency people and stuff like that. Right, right. Yeah, I just think, you know, I I try to decide on on the day to day when's the right time to sneak in a load of laundry. I can't imagine decision making on that level. <laughs> well, it is. It's when they do these simulations, right? It it it, it doesn't quite seem real, but it, it is it is very interesting. You have this big group of people working through all these problems, talking about all the, uh, everything from the political consequences. I mean, y you can see there could be terrible political consequences. Suppose you, you try to deflect it and you, you know, something goes wrong and it doesn't work quite right, and you deflect it from something that would have hit one country and now it's going to hit another country. Okay, well, that might be interpreted as an act of war or something, right? There's all kinds of of problems that can come up in this, <laughs> right? right. So it, that's, that's fascinating because I said earlier in this conversation that an asteroid hitting the Earth was the, the clean alternative to worldwide devastation. But if we had enough time, say we identified... We're, we're, I, I suspect that we'll have time, right? Okay. It'll be one of these things where, like, 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 like this object, you, you, you find it and it's... Um, close, but it's not really going to hit for uh, 10 years or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so you've got time to work on it, but also you've got time to, to thresh over it. So the, 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 there is the bullseye case where it's just coming out of the blue directly at you and you don't, in, in just the right way so that you don't see it move very much, right? That's very unlikely. We're likely to see it a few years ahead of time. I would like to think that we would rally, right? that it would be a common thing 
that all humanity could get around. But I've probably changed my perspective over the course of the pandemic. <laughs> Where it may be like, uh, you know, anything can be politicized. This would be politicized. Conspiracy theories would be um, rampant. It would be, you know, it would be, I think it would be a very difficult time. That was astronomer Ken Chambers speaking with the conversations Savannah Harriman Pote about asteroids. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Care Choices in Hilo, offering palliative, hospice, and bereavement care since 1983, now hiring health care and administrative professionals. Application at hawaiicarechoices.org. We crave connections. It's human nature to want to know what's happening in your community, in the news, and with each other. And we need those connections now more than ever. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio helps keep you connected, engaged, and enriched. Wherever you are, whatever's happening in the world, stay connected on the HPR app or ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with new tours Evoking Divinity and Sustaining Hawaii, exploring historical context and cultural relevance of works across the museum. Registration at honolulumuseum.org. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear about an effort to get indigenous youth involved in conservation projects. What do you think about the headlines? Got feedback about the Aloha Stadium project? Should it be rebuilt at Halava or in Manoa? Share your comments or questions about what you've heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.